This following episode of Another Buddy Movie Podcast does contain spoilers for the film Shadow in the Cloud. So if you have not seen it yet and do not want to hear spoilers about that film, please look at the show notes and see the time code for when we do talk about that film. It's the first one we talk about and skip accordingly. Hope you enjoy the show, guys. Cheers. G'day, everyone, and welcome to Another Buddy Movie Podcast. I am Sean Coates. Thank you very much for listening. And we survived 2020. I don't know how, but we did it, and we're back for our first episode in 2021, back with, you know who he is, it's Eric Disher. Hello. And I think we did a similar episode to this around this time last year, and I believe I declared on that episode that that was going to be, I think I've said this on almost every podcast I've done since then, but I think I declared that that, that 2020 was going to be the year that Another Buddy Movie podcast became an actual real podcast that with a consistent release schedule and we did that episode and it was good we set ourselves a path and then the pandemic came along and kind of screwed all that up yeah unfortunately it did yeah but even then 2020 was able to um release some pretty good films um and just before we talk about some of the films we've got to talk about today we've got a really good lineup we're going to talk about shadow in the cloud uh minari earwig and the witch uh nomadland and music but um <laughs> uh we're gonna <laughs> you begin sound off... too enthusiastic about that i'll, one. <laughs> I'll fucking get to it not Don't a fan worry. of the music oh my god it's a turn it off that's that's if i was to give a three-word review it would be turn it off but um, we're going to start firstly by, because this is the first time I've uh, seen or spoken to Eric, and yes, um, because of COVID restrictions or lack of COVID restrictions in Melbourne right now, Eric and I are actually in the same room mm. recording a podcast, which is great. Yeah. And um, we're just going to begin uh, by me asking Eric, and um, I don't know where I was going with this. I was going to lead into question. a big, I was going to lead into like this big sort of, uh, you know, expand, you know. I don't even know. Eric. I don't know either. <laughs> it's been too long. Eric, um, we're just going to quickly, I'll just going to quickly ask you, as I said, yep. what were some of your favorite films of 2020? Oh, Eric, I didn't, I didn't watch too much for 2020. I did a lot more of uh, just watching like other stuff. Yeah. For um, the listeners at home, Eric has had to pull up his letterboxed uh, account yeah. to see what 2020 films he's actually Well, watched. I also want to make sure that I'm, I'm getting... The, the year's correct, because I might accidentally mention something that came out a couple of years ago that I thought came out this year for some reason. Well, it's weird. I remember a lot of people have put The Wolf House as... Apparently, that got a release sometime this year, but I remember mm. you talking about that film back in 2018, but yeah. apparently that got more the, of a the, release the this Wolf year. The Wolf House, yeah, I did. I was uh, talking about that in 2018, because I think that's when it started running, like, festivals yeah, and, and stuff like that. I think that. it got it... It must have got, like, its more mainstream release in 2020, yeah. which it, is... It must have just got onto some big like streaming platform or they must have decided yeah give it a like a proper theatrical run or something like that like about now which is kind of funny um because i saw that film like ages ago so like maybe technically i can talk about that film again because it was on it was i don't know about the rest of the world but i remember seeing it on movie back in 2018 i'm pretty sure it was on australia anyway yeah i'm pretty sure it was on movie in, in 2018 so, so if you can't find one, that would possibly be a retroactive best film of 2020. Oh, but I don't I, know if I can say there's a best film, but like <laughs> I, I did like Possessor. That that surprised me a bit because I thought it was, I don't know, going to be like, I, I, did, I haven't seen Antiviral, and um, I sort of what I heard from uh, Brandon and Cronenberg was like he's edgier than um his father and with less substance, um, but I okay. sort of got the reverse. I mean, 
Possessor does seem edgier than his other work, but I, mm. I, I think it's a, it's got more substance than some people would yeah, think. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, I mean, at I, least it's entertaining, regardless. Yeah, I, th- I think Possessor is going to be a film I need to rewatch because it's a film where, like, uh, I really liked when I saw it, but really haven't thought about it that much since. But like, mm. I'd be keen to give it another go. And I think I was rather tired when I saw well, it. I've as seen. Well. I think I'm pretty sure I've seen Possessor twice. Um, I think. Oh no, I could be wrong. Um, and I'm pretty sure if I did watch it twice, I probably liked it as much um, from my initial viewing. Um, so that's something that seemed to just hold up. I don't know if I've really... I can't really remember uh, re-watching anything else from... I see Hubie Halloween on your list yeah. of 2020 films. <laughs> Is that one of the best? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a solid in, um, Sandler flick. Um, I mean, I, I'm glad... You know, I'm a sucker for Sandler. I mean, I'm glad that I watched that with, with, in, like, that sort of group setting that mm. we watched it in, because yeah. if I didn't, that movie would have been painful for me. Oh, you have to watch it with friends. I mean, I mean it is it is a lot better than a lot of other... Uh, you you just feel Sandler like the, fair. the, the, the loneliest just, person if you watched it without a group. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's just Adam Sandler's performance as, you know, Hubie, <laughs> who I describe as a mix of Milton from Office Space and Courage the Cowardly Dog. Because that's what he's doing. He's, he he's, got, he's got the lisp in his voice, and he's got the thermos, and it's like uh, my thermos, <laughs> and I got my stapler. Where's my stapler? And I'm gonna burn this whole fucking building down. Mm. Yeah, I it's don't know. Just H- Mil- H- it's Hubie. Milton from Office Space. It really is. H- Hubie Halloween was uh, it was it was fun. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, oh, now what was it? Siberia. I thought this was uh, oh, a this film is, that came um, out in 2019, but it's a 2020 film. That's apparently. right, because it played at Berlin, I think. I, I saw it really early. I must have saw it really early in 2020, which is why I might have thought it was a 2019 film. Right now, that's um, Ferreira, Abel Ferreira's new film, right? Yeah, um, that I can't really remember much from, <laughs> but I just remember. I just know that it was very str- odd. <laughs> it was entertaining, most definitely. Probably. Um, I don't know, like Defoe's performance is sort of um, echoing like the cr- the madness of the lighthouse. <laughs> Probably madder, I would say, in like uh, Just from, Siberia. From what I heard about this film, it's kind of, I've heard a couple of like uh, Werner Herzog kind of Klaus Kinski-esque sort of, uh, I guess, comparisons to, I guess, the I'm, working relationship or I guess like how it's presented in uh, both Ferreira and Defoe in terms of Siberia. But I don't know how I don't, valid I don't, that yeah, is. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why they're making that claim like... Um, I don't really understand the claim, to be honest, because uh, I think I would think that Defoe and Freire work well together. It's not like um, uh, Kinski and Herzog. Herzog's got to keep the mad dog in check, <laughs> got to make sure that no one at the set tries to murder him because <laughs> he thinks that everyone loves him. And he's like, you you idiot. Um, the only reason why you're still alive is because I'm like here to calm you down and calm them down and stop you from killing them. It's a good thing that I, <laughs> that I don't want to kill you just yet. Because got this movie to shoot, um, um, but maybe like they think like uh, like the character that he plays is sort of like a Kinski, or maybe the performance just sort of reminds him of like I other think, Kinski, that, I, s- I, like snippets of Kinski. Act, I, having like, not actors. seen the film, I think that's probably it. Like um, like just just like probably when when Kinski's going like mad or something on like Fitzcarraldo or pretty much any any there there'd be a point in any like Herzog Kinski film where he's just going crazy. Um, that's just like uh, that's pretty much Defoe for throughout the like most of the film, but it's just like a weird sort of surreal. I don't even know how to describe it because there's sections where it's like uh, Defoe would be playing like other characters, like his like father or something, but it'd be like 
some weird dream. So, like, he'd be playing his father talking to him as at his current age, but as a child, or something weird like that. And then you would have him, like, in the same scene where they're in a cave, where he's, like, him as the as his age, um, but he's pretending to be a child. I don't know, it's odd. Really yeah, weird. I'm pretty sure it gets attacked by a bear at some point. Like the, the there's not much in the way of structure. It seems pretty loose. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen Ferrera make a film like that. Although I haven't seen a lot of his uh, um, 2000s, uh, 2010s work. But most people seem to tell me it's not great. Well, I, I the only I think the only Ferrera film that I've actually seen was Tommaso. Yeah, and, you and said I, that I've wasn't... told you about Tommaso. I'm not sure if I've discussed it here on this podcast, but I I would akin uh, Tommaso by Abel Ferrera as like uh, Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory, but mm, uh, way more sucks. shit <laughs> and way more self indulgent and like uh, with the artistic narcissism like driven up to eleven. Mm. Uh, it, it's. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I don't know. He's he's like, I don't know what Tommaso is like. Some weird arty. Uh, I don't know because I, I like his New York. He's sort of like sleazier, like like half exploitation, um, sort of like art house, uh, New York like crime films that he was making in like the nineties and the late eighties. Like I like that stuff um, from him. Is he, now, is, he you doesn't seem to make anything like that anymore. Well, he lives in Italy now, doesn't he? I, I'd, I think so. I'd assume he would because that's it's, if Tommaso is to be believed, like it's about like an American filmmaker now living in Italy with uh, his much considerably younger wife and mm. his daughter, who is played by Ferrera's actual wife and daughter. Mm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know uh, where he'd live. Mm. But to quickly to do a great segue into another film we're going to talk about on your list is a little film called Shadow in the Cloud, mm. um, a 2020 film because I believe it premiered at Toronto's sort of like the whatever sort of festival like digital festival they did this year. So it premiered there and it came out in January in most territories in 2021 this year. Mm. And yeah, we both saw it uh, not together. But uh, what did you think of Shadow in the Cloud? Well, um, I don't know. It was fun. Uh, I didn't really know what to expect from it because uh, I can't remember seeing anything uh, written by uh, Landis, Max Landis. So this, um, is, this is interesting. So are you aware of what actually happened with this film? No. So apparently Max, whatever, Max Landis's script got like completely rewritten by... Uh, oh, the director. The director, Ro- yeah. Roseanne, Roseanne Liang? Yeah. Rosanna Liang? Roseanne Liang? Uh, yeah, I think Roseanne Liang. Roseanne yeah. Liang, yeah. So she basically took Max Landis' script and like almost completely rewrote it. And yeah. it makes me wonder if like, because there was that there was that thing that um, Max Landis said of like, I think it was right around the time when he was just before he was getting cancelled, basically said like, oh, I'm going to make an action movie for the Me Too era. Mm. And I'm wondering if this was that movie. Probably it could have been. Yeah, I don't um, know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it could have been, if uh, if that's what he meant, unless he was just being, you know, sarcastic or whatnot. Mm. Just taking the piss. Yeah, like, this film is, as I said on my Letterboxd review, it's an enjoyable mess. Um. <laughs> oh, definitely a mess. I mean, it's pretty dumb. I don't know, it's weird, like, when it tries to change tones. I don't think it works. No, because... At all. I mean, uh, when it's sort of like a contained, I, I kind of, I was kind of enjoying it when it was like a sort of like mm. a, a, a literal chamber drama where yeah. like uh, Chloe Grace Moritz's character is basically locked within like the gunner of that 
of the, oh, of the plane. I think the first half of the film is like the best. Hmm. The second half, even though it's the funnest, it's just it's just dumb. <laughs> yeah. Oh, as soon as she it's has to, it's just like, straight dumb. It's literally. I wonder if it's the Landis connection. I know uh, Landis didn't do. I don't think Landis did this section in the Twilight Zone movie. But there was the um. The, the, the famous thing of the gremlin on the side of the plane, and now mm. there's actual gremlins <laughs> on the thing. I was yeah. wondering if that was part of Max Landis's first script. No, nah, I just, think... It wouldn't be surprised if he just cribbed everything he ever did from his father. No, nah, I mean, I think... I, I'll probably... But I'm um, like... I think in World War Two there were, like, gremlins were sort of like a thing that, like, I don't know, pilots would just... Uh, make excuses about faults in the plane or yeah. uh, whatever. Like, it wasn't just, like, something you made up. Just, I mean, they... Uh, what was it? That cartoon at the oh, beginning. The, uh, that's that, like that's the old great. Snafu. That is great. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, like, they probably had, like, you know, snafu cartoons where they're talking about, like, gremlins or something like that. So, yeah, I, yeah, I really like that. I was um, surprised to see that in there. I didn't think they would have that much sort of detail to sort of really place it and, like... Um, I don't know, 40s era World War Two. I thought, like, um, they're just going to use it as a setting. Uh, I don't know. Uh, that they wouldn't care too much about, like, finer details like that. Like, honestly, I didn't really know what to expect from all I heard was, like, you know, there's a plane and then there's gremlins on the plane. Mm. Yeah, um, I saw that and I also saw the runtime of 83 minutes. Yeah. And was like, I yes, was happy to I'm see that. This. I'm seeing this. And. It actually, in that in that sense, it actually feels. In, in in this case, it's kind of a good thing. It feels mm. like it still has a, a. It is still pretty well paced, I find, but it mm. still feels longer than eighty three minutes, which yeah. I found good. I mean, like part could just be like, you know, the first half just being contained in like yeah, um, makes it feel like the 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 uh, what's that gunner chamber or whatever, and the second half just being like. The pacing seems to like amp up a lot more. It's yeah. just like chaotic. As soon as like they get back into the thing of the ship, um, mm. yeah. As you were saying, this movie's really dumb. Yeah. Uh, especially how uh, Chloe Grace Moretz survives one particular situation when she almost certainly would be dead. <laughs> oh, what the 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 ex- plane explosion? Yeah. Oh no! Like everything, like from that <laughs> point, like what? Why is she shooting at the the gremlin? Well, it's got a baby. You could have hit a baby. Oh. Only an insane person would fire a gun at a child. And then, like, climbing under the plane, it's like... With, and I think she had, like, a broken arm or something, or a hand. Yeah, I don't know. It was, yeah, it was pretty, like, over the top at that point. I think that point, it just went complete camp, and people were just, like, dying in, like, weirdly comedic fashion. Like, they will just, like, yep. say some kind of snarky remark, and they get guns. I don't know. It was really... Dumb. I mean, I think th- another thing, and firstly, I have to now put a spoiler warning on this uh, episode from what you've said now. Mm. But um, also in terms of that, like, I think the because the crew are made to be incredibly unlikable by just mm. the incredibly misogynistic things that they say. Well, I guess all besides character, one character, all besides one, which you find out why not yeah. later on. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it is it is in service of like one to make their ultimate demises, you know, more satisfying, mm. I guess. Or but mm. I don't know, it seems a bit cheap to me. But then also I think it was just kind of overdoing it a little bit. It was like it was almost mm. getting to the point where like I understand this might I understand that this probably is what they would have been like, but yeah. it just came across as like cartoonish. And yeah. I get this is a B movie, but yeah. like it just like 
in this situation, well, that's the thing, like, in this situation, I don't think they would be this. You know, no. Nah, to be, I'd agree with you. That's this is the thing. Like, they yes, they would they would talk like sexist. You know, uh, locker room talk and all that. Um, but like they, I don't think they would be that fair. Like even soldiers, um, especially like Air Force soldiers, I don't think they would be that bad. Maybe Marines, um, that were actually in the thick of it. Um, but like, yeah, the way that they're talking is like the dialogue that you would have in like an exploitation film, like in like the old Inglorious Bastards kind of thing, like a like one of those old World War Two exploitation, like um, uh, SS Hell Camp or something like that. Like, like that. But that's just because they they. Uh, intentionally make the characters like sleazy and disgusting and like that's just the whole aesthetic of it so this you've got this like weird sort of it's almost it's, it's, it's almost a bit of like a joke really <laughs> where they're sort of talking like they're like the dialogue has been taken from a different uh genre of film um that's like supposed to be provocative by design and then they're sort of placing it this and sort of getting you to take it seriously where like in that context you wouldn't take take it seriously because it's you know intentional bad taste um, sort of thing, and then sort of like them getting killed was just a seemed a bit like it seemed like a, a lame excuse to sort of punish like this kind of behaviour. <laughs> I don't know, like they they could have done more about it. They could have maybe developed the characters a bit more, well, and I don't, I don't, maybe I don't not know have them die in such a lame way. I, I I wouldn't necessarily agree of like these guys really need more development, but it's just I think they're just. Oh, I mean, like, just, just to make the deaths maybe, like, not just seem like they're... It's sort of like a punchline yeah. kind of death. I, I think it just... Yeah, I think it just overdoes it a little bit mm. in just how, gro like, grotesquely misogynist these guys are. Mm. And well, not, I, not saying that... I, I, don't, I don't want the dialogue. It just, does, it just doesn't seem fitting for the film. It just seems like... Like, as I said, like, I don't know, they... Uh, like, it just sounds like it's from some World War Two exploitation film. And like the way that they 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 just get like shot out of the plane or something like that, um, they sort of get like they just, they they sort of just get thrown away, um, and it's not like they just they come upon some sort of like equally gruesome demise. It's almost like oh, you know, forget about them sort of thing, uh, while like all the chaos is happening. My God, those three like Japanese zeros—they must be like the worst pilots <laughs> in, in like the whole armada or whatever you call like a like a plane fleet. <laughs> Because they should have tore up that plane in like a minute or something, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, but I would say like it's it's a very light recommend. I would say this film. It's I, I would say watch it on a plane, but no, don't do that oh. <laughs> because that might be you might be a bit paranoid if you watch it on a plane. Well, I mean, I wouldn't. A, I wouldn't be expecting cable, you to be a, a, on a war plane. But I, I would <laughs> say I would say a cable watch, or in this case now a streaming watch, because we're now living in that era. I would say as soon as this comes to Netflix or to wherever it goes, I reckon it will be you know very mm. well watched. I, think. I mean, I'd recommend it. Just, just. Just I don't know. Don't expect much more than it being like silly. I guess especially for the second half. Yeah. I, I guess that's where I'm a bit more annoyed. Where it's like the first half seemed to be like just tonally a lot more serious. Um, and then there's sort of there's that that big sort of double twist sort of um like at the halfway point, and then after that oh, just goes the the, the the twist that Chloe Grace Moritz isn't British. <laughs> with that terrible accent that she's got. Yeah. Like, how the hell is she fooling anyone? I, I do like that twist of, like, oh, she's not actually British, but it's yeah. like... 
But uh, I don't know. It seemed, it seemed pretty funny because it sort of seemed like, oh, she didn't want to keep up a British accent. <laughs> so they're just like, just, just, uh, just reveal that you're American, and they're, they're just going to think that you're an American spy. For some reason, you being an American spy is bad. Um, it might have worked more if she, I don't know, speaking some kind of European, uh, Eastern European accent or something. They might have thought that she was, I don't know, Soviet or, or, or maybe German even. They're they in Auckland. Or, or they're in Auckland. Yeah. So give her, have her, give her a New Zealand accent. No, I mean, like, if yeah. she, if she, if she sounded like the enemy, they would have, like, more incentive to, you know, worry about her being a spy, but... <laughs> Like, her giving up a British accent for an American accent. I don't know why they're worried, because they're all Americans on the plane. Yeah, except for the Maori guy. They'd be like, oh, it's one of our spies, besides the Maori guy, pretty much. Um, and that that uh, Scottish-sounding dude. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, all played by, you know, Australian and Kiwi actors as well, because this was shot in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd, yeah, I'd recommend it if you if you want something fun to watch. Pretty much, mm. but yeah, yeah, I'm in the same boat there too. But changing tack um, and changing tone rapidly, um, we go to uh, something that's a lot, a little bit more contemplative and a little bit more slower moving than that. Something that more is, consistent in tone, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and that is uh, Chloe Jaw's Nomadland. Um, mm. Now you've now uh, once we were get, we're organising to go see this. Um, mm. You did a little bit of a dive into Chloe Zhao's work, but more specifically her previous film, The Rider, which is a yeah. film that I think is brilliant and possibly. I, I like The Rider more than Nomadland. I do too. To I think I think The Rider might be one of the best American independent films of like the last ten years. I think it's yeah. brilliant. I, I wouldn't disagree with you there. I think that that uh, it's a, that claim really holds water. Because um, yeah, The Rider. I think like Nomad Land seemed to lack a lot of the like the emotional pull of the rider, like like I could actually care about the character in the rider a lot more than sort of like Francis McDormand's character. Not saying that I didn't care about it, but it's just sort of I don't know. Um, like the film seemed to be a lot more uh, didn't seem to have much of a too strong of an emotional drive. Like it seemed to just be at this plateau of being sort of calm. There are points where there's like um you know little spikes in drama, like her losing a job at like Amazon and then sort of picking up the nomad life and um sort of I guess like uh the relationship uh I wouldn't even say like pre relationship uh, uh drama between her and that uh, older guy David Strathairn yeah which isn't really really drama in in a sense uh, which is strange because they're not even in a relationship it's just sort of like uh, I guess like um, her sort of still deciding or whatnot, um, sort of like I guess her her um, getting into a relationship with him would be her abandoning this like nomad life that she sort of set out for, um, sort of uh, giving up that freedom and going back to sort of like a domestic uh, lifestyle that she had before then. Yeah, well, I think as well, because the film, there's a little, like, a text before the film, and, like, you learn more about uh, McDormand's character as well. Like, mm. um, her her husband died, I can't remember if, 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 what it was, I think it might have been her husband died of cancer or something, some sort of similar oh, affliction. Oh, a mining accident. Or a mining accident, sorry, that's yeah. right. And, um, like, so, and so her mining town basically, like, her entire town, her entire postcode was basically taken off the map. And like the mm. yeah, but basically completely shut down because of like the global financial crisis. Because the film, yeah. the film is set in twenty eleven as well. Yeah, and 
I mean, in terms of that sort of internal character drama, like Francis McDormand really sells that. But in mm. terms of like the overall portrait it's trying to make, and I think this is why I didn't see the character I saw Francis McDormand. And especially mm. when, I think, because I believe the only real actors in this film are David Strathairn and uh, Francis McDormand. Yeah. And everyone else is, you know, real real people. Yeah. And like their story, and it's that's why I think what makes um uh, the writer so great is that they're basically, it's a fictionalized version of their own stories. Yeah. But it's just so brilliantly, brilliantly done in this brilliant mix of uh, fiction and, you know, real life events. Mm. And like, you know, a real, yeah, of like documentary and sort of, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But here, like, there's that immediate disconnect because you see both Francis McDormand and David Strathairn. Yeah. And, and just despite how good their performances are, there's always that disconnect Actually, there. Actually, you're right. There, there is hard. a bit of a weird, like, actor inverse where it's like the, the, um, the two most important characters are actors and everyone else is sort of an, like an extra where it's like in the case of um, uh, the rider, like all the prime characters and like non-actors uh, mostly. Um, and but uh, maybe some of the side characters there they might be actors. I'm not really sure who's an actor or not um, in uh, like the rider and Nomadland. Aside from some of these characters that make a recurring appearance in like all of uh, her films, um, even from um, uh, songs my brother taught me, which I have not seen yet. But, but these characters only play like small roles, like they do in these uh, subsequent films. Mm. Um. But uh, I don't know. In Nomad Land, I find everything happening around Francis McDormand a lot more interesting than like this. I is can the thing, see that. I yeah. Can like see you, that. you, you starting to remind me what I was thinking about after. Like this is a little while after watching the film where you mentioned oh, um, takes place at the uh, 2011 financial crisis, where it's sort of like painting this portrait of like this sort of new economic era. Yeah, and, and like, like she's and this, going this to area of America specifically mm. at that time too. It's sort of like um, it, it seems to be like an era of like uh occupational nomads people going to do temporary work for um like amazon like seasonal base work and then sort of people are just like living on the road not really having any sort of like fixed identity because the town's just been wiped out um it's like sort of things like that and then there's like that uh character of like it seemed like a hitchhiker cowboy or something like that like there seem to be like weird little uh elements of like some sort of um uh like new american like mythology like that that sort of guy seemed like um like he could have been uh mythologized or based on some sort of like mythic uh well, johnny cash like man on yeah, the road well, well, sort that, of thing. that's that's what i loved about the writer so much mm. is how it basically takes this very american image of mm. you know the cowboy and sort of you know recontextualizes that mm. in like the brady from the writer in that sort of thing like mm. i'm badly badly explaining it but i'm yeah, well, it's it's sort of like, um, I guess, like showing a lot more of like the vulnerability or like yes. the like um, health considerations that these like characters would genuinely have. Like, of course, they're going to show bravado in front of their friends, but like when they're in a, a situation where they're sort of removed from uh, this crowd that they're trying to impress, that's when they're sort of thinking like, okay, like yeah, this is a bit dangerous, especially um, in the case of Brady. And, like, um, it's not just him that he's thinking about. It's also, like, his sister and his father. Like, his father is 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 a bit of a no-hoper, like a gambler. He's, he's away from the home most of the time, so he's pretty much looking after his sister. So if he's gone, could he really trust his father to look after her? That sort of thing. And, um, yeah, but also, like, I also like that um, 
that sort of uh, literal metaphor of getting back onto the horse as yeah. well. Like, um, I guess, like, the rider seems to be a lot more, like, straightforward in what it's trying to achieve, but I think it yeah. achieves it very well. Yeah, Nomadland is definitely trying to capture a much bigger sort of vision, or not mm. a vision, but, like, a b- much bigger sort of portrait of America at, at, at this time, and, like, mm. this certain, I guess, I, I wouldn't call it a lifestyle, I guess, but, like, this sort of... Oh, I would say that it's sort of, like, it seems to be sort of, um, I don't know predicting the future in in a sense with like um this uh this connection between like this nomad lifestyle and sort of this new like economic feel that's being presented after this recession where it's like and i and i can remember like reading some articles saying that oh um, most people of our generation shouldn't expect to just have like steady work that they that we, we might most likely would go for six jobs in our lifetime or seven jobs even like the, the number might increase so this sort of nomadic sort of lifestyle is probably better suited for this um, occupational, like, you know, ship jumping almost. Um, it's sort of what I think. But also then again, like this sort of uh, displacement of like identity, um, or this sort of loss of identity or picking up this like nomadic identity where it's like they sort of don't really have any solid like pinpoint or place. They have to change their... their um, their point of like identity, like identity reference, mm. um, and it's like you know funny that like uh, uh, sort of like the word like nomad, where it's like no home or whatever, but they like their home is wherever yeah. they are, well, sort of. Well, that's the, the um, she's asked at one point. Samantha McDonald's character is asked at one point in the film. It's like, are you homeless? And she says, no, I'm houseless. Yeah. Yeah. I will also say... Uh, that, that could even be, like, some sort of, like, um, commentary on just, like, I don't know, maybe people from our generation possibly not ever being able to pay off a house. Yeah. Because it's just house prices, like, rising so much with inflation, like, uh, I don't know, debts and all that. Definitely. I'll also just give props to, A, the location uh, scouts yeah. for this film, and also... Um, also, Chloe Jaw and her cinematographer, whose name I am blanking on right now, but oh my god, they can shoot a sunset. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they, they can shoot a sunset from what looks to be, which most of this movie from what looks to be natural light, and I'm pretty yeah. sure the rider was the same as well. No, but yeah, all of her films are quite impressive, and and Nomadland really just uh, is uh, doesn't fall short in just how impressive like the rider looks. Mm. And I'm glad that, you know, like, after the, the rider did get some, a, a fair bit of uh, awards recognition at the mm. Independent Spirit Awards and, like, um, a, a couple of other smaller ones, but it never really got the traction enough in the bigger awards ones. Mm. But the Golden Globe nominations were al- announced uh, last night, and it got quite a few really big ones, including Chloe Zhao for Best Director. Or for Nomad Lynn. Yeah. yeah. Which also, we should say, uh, the Golden Globes, even though we'll get to a couple of the heinous nominations that it got uh, in just a moment. Yeah. Uh, well, this is going to be a surprise for me. For the fir- I think for the first time ever, women majority in the Best Director category. Mm. So it was Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman, um, Regina King for One Night in Miami, mm. and Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. Which is was it just those three for the best director nominations? Or? Well, then they then they put in David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin as well. So, yeah. but Mank and Trial of the Chicago Seven, which whatever. But 
I don't know. I'm pretty sure I only saw out of the films you listed, um, Nomad Land. So I can't talk about any of the other. Oh no, I saw Mank. I, I could give yeah, a shit saw about it. With it. Me. <laughs> yeah, we saw it together. And I was like, uh, um, yeah, you know, it's just a film, it just it's a film it, I enjoyed watching, but have not thought about. It, it one just bit seemed since. like they were fanboying like Citizen Kane, which is all right, I guess, but. Yeah, I don't know. Really, couldn't care about it. Didn't it. really feel like fanboying to me. I feel it's, it was made out of. I feel like it's made out of genuine love for Citizen Kane, but all, but not in a way of like, look how much I love Citizen Kane. But no, if no? like fanboying, because a lot of like, I don't know the structure. Like a lot of the structures, structure of like the um scenes seem to echo Citizen they, Kane. They do. Like a lot of, and it, yeah, I don't know. It just seemed like odd. Um. Like they they're sort of putting what's his name, uh, Mankiewicz in the in the sort of Kane misunderstood sort of uh, character. I mean, he's not a tycoon, but he's sort of put in that sort of position where it's like, oh, uh, the the audience is sort of questioning like Mank, um, like trying to figure him out. It's like the audience is trying to figure out Kane, and like the reporters trying to figure out Kane, sort of thing. Hmm. But um. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think you mentioned something like uh, Fincher was trying to, like, a big reason why he made Mank was because he was trying to show that, oh, um, it's it's not the director that does all the work sort of thing, or the director shouldn't get all the credit. Like, some sort of anti-tourist sort uh, of, like, I think, sentiment. I think that's which is, more of the... It's a bit weird coming from him, because isn't he the guy that's, like, splitting, like, oh, you got film, you got movies, and then you got films. Like, I, th- I thought that he'd be the kind of guy that loves... Or tourism. I know, but... I think Even though it's, it's absolute it's, nonsense. It is, and it's also, <laughs> you know, heavily based on, you know, Pauline Kael's very famous sort of piece on Citizen Kane as well about, like, you know, which is basically what the film is based on. Oh, okay. It, even though, like, the claim, it, which has been, you know, th- you know, well and truly and debunked, mm. that no, um, it, the way that the movie paints Orson Welles is not really true to what actually happened. Yeah. But anyway, so we were, we were talking about the Golden Globes, and this moves nicely into uh, what the next film we have to talk about, which I saw a media screening of uh, uh, just a couple of days ago, and is actually out in Australia from February 18th. Mm. Uh, this is, of course, Minari, uh, the latest. It's an American film, mm. which the Golden Globes recognised. as foreign language. But still recognised it as a foreign language film, even though... Yeah. Yes, a majority of the film is in Korean, but yeah, there but is it's also a, it's an American made made by an American director, yeah. financed entirely by you know from American well, studios and things like that. I mean, it's like what's that uh, Schrader film, Mishima? Like that's Japanese language, but it's an American film. Yeah, <laughs> and and it got put in. Yeah, it got put in, and a lot of the film is in English too. But it mm. got put in the foreign language film category. Also, Stephen Yun did not get a nomination for this film. None of the cast got any nominations for any of this film, which mm. is would you, would you think is what they got robbed because they were good? Because yeah. I haven't seen them. In yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it hasn't been screened in Australia yet, so of course you haven't seen it. It's not out yet. Oh uh, yes, I haven't <laughs> seen it. Anyway, uh, audience, um, you can uh, interpret what Eric just said in any way you want because uh, we aren't going to speak any further on that. <laughs> but Minari is um, its an American story, Ameri- capital A American story, mm. uh, set in the 1980s. It's a Korean family, Korean-American family who move over from California to 
Arkan store to basically they they basically buy this massive bit of land in the middle of nowhere to start a farm, basically. And they're in America. They're like, it's a Korean film. <laughs> it's it's just because the family when, because when the they speak, speak with yeah, each other. They speak, they speak in Korean. Yeah. When they speak with the children. Speak English to each other. Yeah. And the ch- basically to everyone else, they speak. Um, they speak. I almost said American, but yeah. they speak English. <laughs> well, I guess they would be speaking American. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's quite funny. So they couldn't even realize that they're just sort of showing this sort of generational, mm. uh, where it's like, I don't know, the, the, the younger generations like and start to speak their, I don't know, less of their parents like language and more of the language of the place they're raised I, in. I, di- I didn't really read too much into that. I think it's more of just the fact of that they were both America. Like, but I think both the children were born in America because there's yeah. one thing. Th- there's a thing where like um because another like the movie doesn't really have too much of a plot. It's basically just their lives in a new co- like not mm. a new country but in a new state in the US. They have a lot of picnics because all the promotional material looks like they just have picnics. <laughs> no, so they play got, just, baseball. They're just, they're, just, they're just wandering through their land. I think in a lot of the promotional material, or it's Stephen Yun so, looking. So they like at his, farmers, uh, or yeah, they're far. Th- well, Stephen Yun's dream is to start a farm and grow mm. Korean vegetables in America and sell them to you know other Korean like communities in yeah. you know in that sort of area in like you know, and um, uh, but then also they've got two young children and their job is basically sexing chickens. So yeah. it's, so they, they their job is to basically pick up chickens, look at their butt, and then organize them into male or female. <laughs> that's their that's their day job basically. That, that's mm. what they did in California, and that's what they're doing in Arkansas. Mm. Stephen Yun's like uh you know has aspirations to build a farm there so they can stop doing that. But then also like while they're doing that, they've also got these two young children as well, and um they actually get their grandmother over from Korea to come live with them in America. And what's interesting about this film as well, and I guess it's also because it's a semi-autobiographical on director um, uh, Lee Isaac Chung's life, Mm. um, it's told from, mostly told from the perspective of the young boy David, who's seven years old. And there's at one point, and like basically he has to live in a room with his grandma and the, the relationship between him and the grandma is kind of the driving force. Everything else is just kind of... I wouldn't say in the background because mm. it's not really because it's is it, the, it like the slice of life kind of def- yeah, yeah definitely more a slice of life because there isn't really a much of a like a plot. dramatic driving force or not really other mm. than like the farm that isn't like the, the farm has troubles along the way yeah and th- there's uh, to, to, to say another really great line in it there's um one because he, he has to learn to live with his grandmother this young boy he says like grandma smells like korea and one of the the, the older sister says you haven't even been to korea to <laughs> what i was saying what I, or what i was meant to say was that definitely the 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 perspective of this is told through with the young 7 year old boy definitely gives a new sort of dimension to this film to a story that we really don't really see too often as well mm. And it's also, yeah, everyone in the family is really great. Like, as I said, Stephen Yeun robbed of a nomination as well. Uh, so mm. is Alan Kim, who plays young David. He is absolutely fantastic. And um, definitely not a Wordsworthy. And he's a kind of in a completely different movie. But, like, Will Patton as, mm. like, their neighbor or just, like, this weird, crazy, religious, Bible-babbling guy that's helping uh, Stephen Yeun grow his crops it's a film it's a performance that is very incongruous with the rest of the film and Mm. a little bit weird but like the film still finds a lot of humanity and warmth in that in that character and yeah i found it really really impressive and it's just overall a really really warm film um like 
Yeah, uh, I'll have to say it again. Let's just say that. <laughs> and it definitely has my recommendations. And um, it actually has, I believe, advanced screenings uh, the weekend before it's released. So Feb 12th to 14th. Mm. So uh, definitely do definitely go release that. Uh, it's awards opportunities, I think, are quite strong, even if the Golden Globes don't bloody see it. Mm. But yeah, definitely check out Minari. Anyway, did you want to mention more about these uh, bad uh, uh, Golden Globe I, nominations? I think I'm gonna I'm gonna save that film till very last because oh, is it one particular film? It is. Oh. It is mainly. Um, but we're gonna talk about it's another. It's not Hillbilly film. Elegy, is it? Oh no, 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 no. no. Okay, but the next film we're gonna talk I about. I can remember that. <laughs> I well, I have not seen Hillbilly Elegy. Everyone so keeps wanna... telling me it's like oh, it's terrible, like. I've, I've seen it, but I can't remember anything <laughs> from it. Well, I don't think I was sober at the time I watched it, but still. <laughs> I might have been better off, apparently. I, the only, I have not seen it because, you know, I enjoy life and I don't need to watch whatever Ron Howard was trying to do with it. I enjoy life. I think I enjoyed it at the time I was watching it, but I can't remember it. <laughs> I mean, I remember, I think oh, it was something I was seeing. I think it was before I saw Sound of Metal. Um, They showed the... Tr- trailer for hillbilly elegy mm. at the cinema that i saw it at and i don't know i, I remember just watching the trailer and being like there's like glenn close talking about there are, there are three types of terminators in life there are good terminators <laughs> oh, and yeah. bad terminators and neutral terminators and i remember just thinking to myself what the fuck does this mean <laughs> oh yeah i don't know it did it did have that sort of like I don't know, sort of cheesy autobiographical, because I, I think it's based of an autobiography anyway. It is, yeah. Um, and, and, and like, Amy Adams seems to be just, like, the really auto- just giving it her all. Now, she really just wants that Oscar. The autobiography, from what I've actually heard, the book is basically, like, a, like you know, like a memoir or basically a look inside to Trump's America. And, like, these are the sorts of people that voted for Trump. Oh, Okay. What, yeah. like heroin addicts and I, Terminator I, fans? I don't know. Maybe. Mm. That, if that's what this film is saying, then yes, I guess. But we're going to change tack to another film that uh, um, that Madman, because Madman are releasing uh, Minari here in Australia, and they're also releasing a film which is out in cinemas today. We are, re- we are recording this episode on uh, Thursday, February 4th, and this film, Earwig and the Witch, is out in cinemas right now. Um, uh, the good folks at Madman and also their anime division also invited me to a screening of this film uh about a week and a half ago, mm. and uh, I was under embargo for a while, but uh, hence why we were meant to do this podcast earlier, but uh, we've delayed it past the embargo, um, just for other reasons, yeah. and now we can talk about it. So, Earwig and the Witch is um, a, I believe it's stu- it's a new Studio Ghibli film, I believe it is their first ever uh, 3D CG film. Is it CG? It is, and... Uh, That's a surprise. An- another thing, I'll show you footage of the film uh, once we're done recording as well, because um, uh, that's when the trailer for this first dropped, a lot of Ghibli fans were quite shocked. Because I'm not surprised it, there. Yeah, because <laughs> it, uh, the, the film didn't look... The, an- they, so the animation, a lot of people thought, looked quite subpar. But mm. it take into a couple of considerations. Um, this was initially made for Japanese television. Oh, and okay. is just getting uh, theatrical releases in a lot of territories outside of Japan. So, you know, the budget, definitely not as big. But then again, it's sort of a, a Goro uh, yeah, Miyazaki. So d- directed by Goro Miyazaki. I don't son think of his track, uh, track record is, is as good as his father's. Cause, um, well, he's, he's a, this is only his third film. Yeah. He made Tales of Earthsea, which 
I believe I've actually haven't read too uh, much into it, but there's a very very famous story about Hale's <laughs> reaction to Tales of Earthsea. From what I well, this is a thing. Um, a friend of mine told me this. Um, Miyaz- uh, hey, uh, Hayao Miyazaki he loved Tales of the Earthsea, but he could never get the rights to make the film. And apparently, um, Nausicaa is sort of a result of what might have been his Earthsea um, film. But it was only at the point when uh, mid two thousands where they came, where I think whoever was the rights holder came to him and they were saying, "You can make your Ursi film." He was like, "Nah, screw you! I'm not going to make it, but my son will." <laughs> <laughs> That's why Goro uh, directed it, um, and he got him to direct it in spite, and which is strange because like he must have thought that his son wasn't going to do a great job or. Or, um, well, didn't think he was going to ha- have as much care. I don't know if he was just trying to sabotage his son as well as, like, the project. Jesus. But um, I, I hear in Japan, like, they hate Tales of Ursi. And I've seen it, and I think it's okay. Um, it's it's not great. It's not... I don't think it's terrible, though. But then again, it's trying to adapt, like... Uh, I don't know how big or how difficult, like, um, Tales of Ursi would be to adapt. But, I mean, like, making one film out of... What I think is like a, a modest sized fantasy right. book is probably not going to be easy. It's like trying to make a 90 minute film out of the Dark Tower, like what they tried to do <laughs> bloody three years ago. <laughs> yeah, but, um, well, that's that's all I've seen from uh, Gore. I haven't seen anything else. Well, his only other film before this was, uh, I believe, 2011's Up From Up on Poppy Hill, which I have heard good things yeah, about. Yeah, I've heard people seem to like that. Yeah, but so yeah. this is. As I said, so originally made for television, um, but it's it's interesting because uh, the film's like opening credits has like a two D sort of silhouette animation, which is actually really really cool. Mm. But so the basic story of this is that like um, the film opens on a young witch, uh, a, a witch jumping off a baby to an orphanage, uh, uh, and then this baby grows. Uh, after the opening credits, you see this baby has grown up, and she's basically really really a control freak really um mm. i can't even remember what is even her name because it's not earwig it's um oh my goodness my notes uh is you can't read earwig? your own writing erica no sorry her name's eric so her name is erica i mm. think but her real name's earwig but like the orf- at the orphanage she's called erica and so she's basically she's basically like running the running the orphanage essentially but like Mm. she thinks she's boss like she knows she's never going to get adopted so she's basically like i'm the king of this bloody orphanage like you will bow down to me i'm amazing (laughs) but then out of the blue she gets adopted by these two people that look like they were ripped right out of an old doll uh (laughs) roll doll book and uh you find she gets taken home to them and it turns out uh one they are witches and um one's a mandrake or a warlock or something yeah. Um, so basically she's like, oh, cool. I'm, I'm, I've been basically, you know, <laughs> I've been adopted, adopted by, by like magicians. Or I've witches been adopted or by witches. Um, oh, can you, like, if you, help, if I help you out, can you teach me witchcraft? And then this, uh, the, the mother, the foster mother then kind of just uses her as manual labor <laughs> for all of her witchcraft. And then she gets really annoyed with it. And then. You know, hijinks ensue as she tries to become a witch herself mm. and, like, tries to become a self-taught witch. And uh, there's also a... Uh, basically, I believe what looks like is get probably the brother of Gigi from Kiki's Delivery Service, uh, Thomas, the black cat. 
Yeah, I was, was wondering the best if part of this film, if this protagonist <laughs> might have been like the young Kiki. I, I don't know. Well, <laughs> especially, but the, the cat's name. I think it's also it's although it's a Japanese animation, obviously. And uh, if you look at the English, vo- if you look at the English language voice cast mm. for this film, uh, the screening I went to was original Japanese language. But if you look mm. at the English language voice cast, it's very very British. Yeah. And also, like uh, the the locations look very English as well. So I think it's meant to be set in England. Uh, this film, mm. but then like you look at the voice cast of the English language version, and you've got people like Dan Stevens and like Richard E. Grant, and uh, a couple of others who I'm blanking on. But um, I don't know what about this film. Um, it's again, this is another film with a very short runtime. It's only eighty odd minutes. Um, I guess probably because it's a major television movie. Mm. Um, it's kind, of, it's fun. It's a fun little film. Um, I can see why it's made for television though, and the um, the animation, although it doesn't look that great. I didn't really have a problem with. Like, I got used to it, and I'm actually quite surprised. A lot of people were saying it looks very sort of like Saturday morning cartoon from, like, the early... from the late 2000s. Like, you know, like a Nickelodeon... like Most a fan, made TV Like, a- fanboy and chum-chum-esque like sort of Nickelodeon animation. Like, that mm. sort of shit. But it actually... It, it actually didn't look too bad. And to my surprise, the characters were actually quite expressive. Like, I thought they were just look dead-eyed and stone-faced but Mm. no they're actually quite expressive and a lot of the movements actually look really good it's just you know it's just not quite as refined as everything else because they clearly didn't have that much of a budget but you know like the animation didn't bother me that much well i mean that's the thing if it's made for tv it's not going to be as clean looking as something they're going to be releasing in theaters that was intended to be released in theaters anyway but then again it's sort of like I don't know, like, what I get from, like, the anime creators is that they really seem to, a lot of them really seem to hate CG animated stuff. Yeah. So, just the fact that they would have heard that this is, like, um, CG anime, they're just going to be like, I'm not yeah. going to watch it. And I think also, the that fact alone. that, from what you've explained, the fact that it's directed by Goro Miyazaki as well doesn't help. Oh, I don't know if they, they care that much about directors, but, like, if they would recognise that this is the guy, like, maybe uh, that second film of his might have saved him, but if he just did Earthsea, and this is, like, the next thing he made, like, feature length they might have just you know got worried <laughs> but then it's then like that plus uh it being cg a lot of people that might know about him and did have a disdain for cg films are probably just gonna hate it even though they haven't seen it <laughs> mm. you know, the film it, it, it's a lot of it's it's a fun yeah family friendly sort of film um it gets really weird in a couple of points Mm. Um, but like, you know, it's, it's good sort of Studio Ghibli weird. It doesn't quite have that Studio Ghibli magic sort of touch to it, but it's still, it it seems to be skewing a lot younger than what, uh, I guess, Studio Ghibli's audience is normally meant to. A lot of their films seem to game. It's nowhere near as dark. I think it's just nowhere near as dark as a lot of their films are. This is what definitely one of your more, this is more on your level of probably like their films are that dark. Like your Ponyo or your Kiki's Delivery Service. Yeah. Like a much more, much more made for younger kids. Just like like a more calm sort of film that isn't. um, And and I think the the cat especially, you know, looks exactly like Gigi from Kiki's Delivery Service, just, you know, Mm. in CGI form. Because I think the real grim ones are the ones that are just made by Takahata mostly. Mm. Or is dealing with more mature sub- subject oh, print, matter. Princess like, Mononoke, though, that's pretty brutal. Oh yeah, I guess but that's Takahata though. No, Ma- Miyazaki. No, no. Princess Mononoke is Mono- Miyazaki. No, Mononoke is Miyazaki. Oh, Mononoke. I'm thinking of Bamboo Princess. My bad. Oh. Kaguya. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. In that case, yeah. 
I guess that's him at, at his darkest, yeah. perhaps. I mean, I've done a pretty poor job of selling it, but uh, Earwig and the Witch actually has quite a wide release, which I was definitely not expecting. It's mm. got a pretty wide release uh, around the country at the moment, and it's in cinemas from today. So uh, if you like anime, uh, I don't know, you may hate this. If, if you're an anime yeah. purist, well, you may hate this, but if you just <laughs> if you just want a fun 82-minute uh, fa- family-friendly film, uh, you, you can do a lot worse mm. than this. I guess you'd probably be aiming more for people that like the the more lighter hearted like Ghibli films that are that don't care about CG animation are probably the ones that are gonna really want to see this and the anime purists. I mean, I, I, I do. I did say about the film's runtime. Uh, the film comes to a very abrupt ending. Like it was like. <laughs> Very, very abrupt. Like I would have liked to have seen, like I don't know, we extra, out of film. an extra five minutes, maybe, <laughs> just to the the way that the film ends. I was like, no, 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 let's let's expand on this a little bit instead of just ending it here. <laughs> kind of sounds like Tale Tale of Earthsea, although everything before the ending doesn't seem to point to the ending. <laughs> it just things just happen, and they end up in a castle, and it ends. <laughs> I mean, right. there's more to it. There's a fight, of course, mm. but... Gr- granted, yeah. I'm not uh, a huge Studio Ghibli fan, but a lot of the thing, But from what I have seen from them, I've either really enjoyed to outright, like, loved. Mm. Like, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, Princess Mononoke, I think is probably one of the best animated films ever made. No, not, not too big on Spirited Away, but I do like it a lot. Yeah. Um, Kiki, I love Kiki's Delivery Service. I love no- My Neighbor Totoro as well. I'm not huge on Miyazaki stuff. Um, uh, I, I'm more, I like of, more of Takahata. I, haven't, I don't think I've seen any of Takahata. I think it's I've seen only yesterday. More. I've seen, seen yeah. uh, only yesterday. Really I was going to mention that before as being a film with a bit more like I guess mature subject matter, but it's still a kids film. Yeah, it's just that I don't know Americans for some reason think oh you can't talk about uh, menstruation, menstruation. Oh my in a God. kids film. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I th- I saw that I saw that film with my Japanese class in its in its theatrical re-release. Mm. I think the first time it was ever released in Australia because, yeah, yeah, because of that. I don't know. Maybe it's just that a lot of Miyazaki's films just seems to be a bit too much like reoccurring stuff where it, I just feel like I'm retreading the same ground over and over. So I seem to like the earlier films that seem to do that first more so than the later ones. That's yeah. just, yeah, that's just me. Some people seem to like that though. But, um, yeah. Anyway, so that's Earwig and the Witch, and we've got so that's we've got, some lovely we've got, ambience. We've got <laughs> we've got some lovely uh, the people. Uh, th- th- there's some work being done on the apartment underneath ours. So if you hear any uh, tools, uh, power tools grinding or uh, muffled radio from the workers, we're just making music in the, in the background. Oh well, you've just said the title <laughs> of this fucking horrendous film, music. The I film, mean, is the, the music in this film that you're going to talk about better than that out oh, there? Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Bound Tool sounds better. My God. Okay, so for people that don't know about this film, this is Sia, uh, Australian Grammy Award winning artist and now filmmaker. Sia. Uh, a dogma filmmaker, Do- apparently. Oh <laughs> yeah, in the press no- it was either in the press notes or in some interview I saw with Sia. She said she utilized her dogma filmmaking Does skills. She? Does she in that film? Is no. it is it like handheld cameras right up their face kind of stuff? Oh, Oh, we can't have Look. wide shots. Uh, we we can't have the camera on like, uh, 
what's it like a um you can't have the camera mounted or whatever like you just you, know, you just gotta hold the damn thing I don't all know. those weird like dogma rules I'm, that they I, put I, in place. I honestly want to <laughs> after Sia said this I then want to put Lars von Trier and like Thomas Vinterberg in a room together show them this movie and see what the hell they would think of it they probably it's like it was their dogma shit. yeah like them saying that this is a dogma film they're just gonna laugh their asses off and they'll be like that 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 bloke harmony Creed made a better dogma film than this <laughs> he actually made a dogma film <laughs> not not this like poor imitator of a dogma film is that gummo uh not gummo um julian donkey boy ah oh, right right <laughs> with with good old uh uh old mate kinski not kinski heard <laughs> sock in there <laughs> playing what wow. is essentially a Kinski role. <laughs> wow, but God, um, oh fuck, do I even want to talk about this fucking shit show of a movie? Well, I thought you wanted to talk about this for like ever, pretty I, I, much. I do, but th- there's a lot. So, I so this film is not yet out in a lot of other territories, but because lucky us in Australia, we got this released, and I guess it's mainly because I guess cinemas are open here, or because mm. C is Australian. Uh, this got released here first. And as of last night, this film now has two Golden Globe nominations for Kate Hudson as Best Actress and for Best (laughs) Film, for Best Picture, Comedy or Musical. Well, I guess it is technically a musical and a comedy, not, not the intentional sense. Not the kind of comedy you laugh with, probably the comedy that you laugh at just because of how no, no, atrocious no, 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 it is. No, no, it, this is it, It's a comedy of errors. Comedy of errors. what this film is. And mm. it's not funny. No, it's a comedy of errors in just... It's not it's a like comedy of errors like Shakespeare comedy of errors. It's a no. comedy of errors in like... It's about how design, the fuck did you do literal this? Literal design. Like, why did, you, why did you do this? How were you allowed to do this? Mm. So for people that don't know, there's been so much said about this film way before it came out. And, I mean, I've been talking to Eric about this in a lengthy chain of texts just to explain to him what this is. Like, I, I, I didn't even know what this was. I just saw it, like, surfacing. He was like, oh, did you hear about this? And, he, and then he, Sean's just, like, telling me stuff. And I'm like, God, this sounds awful. Like, he's going to get into more of it in finer detail. But I, I was surprised that this was made or whatever. So- you, you go. So basically, the trailer for this film first dropped in November of last year, and the film is basically about a young, uh, non-verbal autistic girl who is played by, firstly, not an actress, a dancer, Mm. Um, uh, our mate from Book of Henry, Maddie Ziegler, playing a a non-verbal autistic girl who, by the way, is not autistic, Mm. and... That's the first of many problems. Second of problem, even this is even before the film comes out. Secondly, Sia seems to have claimed to have done three years of research into autism spectrum disorder before making this film, and she didn't discover a multitude of mm. uh, among a multitude of things that a restraining autistic people during a meltdown is not the right thing to do. Uh, didn't she get funding from um, not that? funding she consulted yeah. after the film was made she consulted with Autism Speaks a notoriously controversial organisation that among mm. many other things believe that autism is a disease that can be cured yeah. and if you want to not, if you want to see how heinous this fucking um, 
organization is, just go and watch uh, a, a, a thing that Alfonso Cuaron, of all people, made I've seen it, a video that's... for them in which I think the video compares uh, autism to being worse than AIDS and it, cancer it, 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 combined. Yeah, it could, there's, a, there's a line where the narrator says that, oh, autism is, is worse than like AIDS, cancer, and like diabetes combined. And like this is like this is like an this is overlaid narration to just like footage of like um just I'm assuming autistic people just like in some like park setting or on a street somewhere staring at the camera with a dark filter on an eerie ambient music. Oh. It's a fucking joke that ad. See, I, it's a joke. I, I should I should make a disclaimer before I rip into this film. I myself am on the autism spectrum. Um, that is probably why if you understand. Like right now, like the, one of the reasons is why I started the podcast is that I struggle with getting thoughts out. I struggle with speaking. And the one of the reasons why I started a podcast is one, I love films and I wanted a platform to speak about them on. But two, it was a way for me to, you know, improve my confidence in, you know, speaking in, in especially speaking, speaking in public, in pu- well, not only publicly, but also in this sort of setting mm. to try to come across more, you know, and like right cohesive. now, I'm, I'm, yeah. yeah, more cohesive and more, I guess, you know, more fluent mm. in my speech because speech is something that I've really struggled with from a mm. young age, and you know, and, and me starting a podcast was me trying to better myself at that, and whether that's been successful or not, I don't know. Mm. I, to me personally, I feel like it's given me more confidence to speak about it, but I do struggle still. So let me just get that out of the way. I am autistic, and there's been a outcry of people uh, of others on the autism spectrum who are much more vocal than i am Mm. about autistic rights and all that sort of stuff that have been very rightfully outraged by Mm. not only like see what sia has done with this film from the things that we explained but also her reaction to the criticisms that came towards her which among a multitude of things uh, inv- involved a tweet that said, "Gur, gur, fuckity fuck. Why don't you, it, why don't you see my move me before judging me, gur, or something along those lines?" And then also, um, when um, she, oh fuck, how do I say this? See, I'm struggling again, and it's gonna happen a lot with this as well because this film, I, well, I mean, just it made it seem like. Uh the reaction that you got is just completely infuriating and just like horribly, just horrible representation of everything. It is. It, it absolutely is. And I'll get more. And it's like, it's not even just like the representation. It's also the intentions where it's like, it, like veiled good intentions. Like, you know, like, uh, see her making all these claims. Like she's oh, making this film. It, like, even if she might've originally like thought this, like it doesn't, it doesn't fall like, uh, follow through a line of like reasoning how she made the film she, like a lot of the design decisions make it look like she's either making an exploitation film or she hates autistic people and she's trying to make it an, an advertisement as heinous as that well, advertisement. what is bizarre to me as well is that i mean again i am going to get into this at length in just a moment but what is bizarre to me as well because from what i've seen by looking online a large base of of Sia's fan base are people on the spectrum. Mm. And a lot of them are rightfully feel betrayed mm. by what's by what Sia has done well, by they, this. they should be with what she's which she's done with, with what she's set out and how she's failed and because she's not even taking responsibility she, no, for No, she's the not failure. she's if anything, she has doubled down she's, yeah, on this. She's pulling a Trump pretty much. Yeah. 
Well, here's the thing. She was on an interview with The Project um, to promote the film, basically. And uh, Lisa Wilkinson, who was doing the interview, um, basically, she, to be honest, Lisa Wilkinson really should have been more interrogative mm. with this because I really don't think she went hard enough on Sia. But she basically uh, addressed the criticisms to Sia. And in terms of like the casting of Maddie Ziegler as mm. a non-verbal autistic person, who her herself being a neurotypical person, mm. um, basically s- said like, oh, it's not ableism. Well, actually, it is ableism, but it's more nepotism because Maddie is like family. Yeah. I don't want to make art without her. I refuse to. So, the f- so Sia... Her own humoristic <sighs> creative vision and also the relation... Like, Maddie Ziegler has been, like, you know, a dancer who rose to prominence on Bloody Dance Moms and then also on in all of Sia's music videos that mm. she's created, basically. And then... But for her to basically exclude the community that she said that she made I'm, this I'm film surprised for... she has the gall to, to flat out say that she's, you know, encouraging nepotism. But yeah, but then to use that an excuse to exclude the people mm. that she made, that she claims to be making this film for is mm. just disgusting. And yeah. this is before even getting into the film. Yeah. See, like, it's just things like this where it's just, you really, even if she ever at some point in the making actually genuinely believe that she's doing this for the betterment of um, autistic... She, she, she says to be doing that, yeah. but in reality, Claiming. she's doing this it's just for all herself. These, she's just doing it for herself. All of her actions just portray any of those claims. And we really should get into the film now because the basic thing, the basic plot of this film is that it's a... I would say that the film is about the titular character of music, which, by the way, <laughs> music is the name of the main character in this film. And you know what's even more infuriating? Even though the character wears headphones the mm. entire film, she has no discernible interest in music whatsoever. Like, music isn't her passion. What? It's like, it doesn't even make any fucking sense. Is she it's listening just... to music? or So she's just, she's just wearing them for whatever reason, just like some aesthetic choice. Well, I, I don't know if it's an aesthetic cho- I think they're trying to be like, it's a lot of autistic children wear headphones because it's like yeah. you know, loud noises and they're, you know, the, or, like sen- they have sensory issues. Or, or like even that. to avoid people just talking to them. I, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think that. I think it's just like, you know, they've just got like, their, their, uh, their ears are much more sensitive. So that mm. like, you know, you know, it may, yeah. Oh, well, I'm sure there's plenty of reasons for why people would be wearing headphones, but it's just like the, yeah. As you're saying, it makes it makes it seem like the film doesn't have and, a discernible reason for for that choice. And it's and it's also because, um, and I think this isn't also just Sia's problem. This is a more a bigger problem with uh, Hollywood in general in terms of depicting uh, autism. Is that um, it's called an it's called autism spectrum disorder, mm. but it's never portrayed as a spectrum. You're either Rain Man or Sheldon Cooper or you're music. If you're autistic in a film, you're either you're either Rain Man or you're this. Yeah, you're either you're in the deep end pretty much. You are either like a genius savant who is bloody glorified for how smart they are, but are also basically made fun of because Mm. you have emotional outbursts and you know you you can't function that well socially. Or you're like this where you are just you may as well be put like in this film's attitude towards it is like, oh, you're a burden. To, you're either a burden to everyone around you, or you're just like this hot potato plot device that is thrown in between characters Jeez. to make them better people on their own journeys, and not you as a kill. You are not a character yourself. 
That's horrible. It's fucking horrible. It's horrible if she's movie, used like a prop like that. The movie is not. The movie is called Music, but the movie is not about her. It mm. is about her older sister, played by Kate Hudson, mm. who has to take care of her after the grandmother dies, and is just about basically her on her be- on her journey as basically a recovering drug addict and her becoming a better person. Because music inspires her. It's fucking infuriating. Makes it sound like she's just a ex- distraction it's, for it's the drugs. Obje- it's objectification. Mm. It's, re- it's, ob- it's objectifying. Yeah, it is objective. I mean, like, she's not even a character in this sense. She's no. literally just a prop. No, she she's is. She's just a prop to for these people to interact with, which and is horrible. It's, it sort of just reminds me of a lot of, like, I don't know, pr- pr- problem with, like, uh, uh, like feminist like criticism on like certain films where like the female character is just there as a prop for something to oogle at or something like that. It's sort of like it's a similar case in this circumstance, but in a different context. Definitely, and the the most and, and there's a few very very pointed examples of just how not made for autistic people this is, and you can clearly see what Sia really really cared about when making this film. Mm. Firstly, there is a scene in which um. In, in terms of what the film uh, decides to pri- prioritise what the most important drama or conflict is in certain particular scenes, or like which perspectives are more important, or what Sia finds more important. So there is a scene, uh, music is also allergic to bees as well. So mm. there, is a f- there is a moment in the film where she gets stung by a bee and starts, having an an- starts going into anaphylactic shock, mm. and the film... Like and then she, like mu- then Zoo, who is Kate Hudson's character. So we've got Zoo and music, and Zoo is short for Kazoo, which I don't know what what's the names. It, it's just it, the names w- even make movie, it. Sound movie like a got farce. a quirk, Eric. Movie got, movie got a quirk. But anyway, so but instead of this drama, so this drama of music immediately being stung by a bee. And um, the sister not knowing that she had an EpiPen on her the whole time and, you know, rushing her to hospital. But that, that, that entire thing, music is, you know, well within the next like, 30 seconds, basically. Mm. In, in the span of a minute, she is stung by a bee, rushed to hospital, and then is fine. But then what Sia decides to think is more important is, oh shit, the bag of painkillers that fucking Kate Hudson sells. Mm. Oh, she lost them in the rush to help fucking music go to hospital and now we're going to spend five fucking minutes of kate hudson looking for her bag of drugs in which she does she in which she kicks over a bin and then a police car rides up and like was basically about to arrest her it's like oh no it's all fine i'm just looking for my bag of drugs and the police are like oh sorry ma'am and drive off what i mean it doesn't go like that but that's the where it boils down to so instead of the negligence of this character almost getting her killed, mm. that's not the drama that fucking Sia yeah. focuses on. It's oh no, white girl lost her bag of drugs. I mean that's that's not even just like it's just the fact that like right after they just quickly solve um, the happy pen situation, like right afterwards she's like drugs. It's like the whole time she was thinking about drugs, and it's like she just had enough priority to take care of her sister. I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised if she was just like, her sister was dying behind her and she's like, drugs, drugs, drugs. <laughs> just went for the drugs. It's fucking awful. Someone else would have had to help it's her out. It's fucking awful. Secondly, I mentioned this briefly as well, but um, in terms of, there's two, mo- the, the fact that Sia decided to not to do this not only once, but twice, mm. have a scene, or two scenes, in fact, 
where music during either an emotional meltdown or when she has a sensory overload in public when she's going for a walk in the park mm. and, you know, is like really upset and crying and like screaming mm. and he's really upset. How, how, how do you think you would calm down an auti- an aut- anyone on the autism spectrum in that situation? Honestly, uh, I wouldn't have much experience, but I'd try to remove them if they're having a sensory overload just to get them away out of the park or okay. somewhere where they can calm down. Right. You wouldn't uh, forcibly grab them, pin them to the ground, arms held to their side and head shoved onto the ground until they stop screaming and Jesus resisting, resisting the pressure? This sounds like um, bliss brutality. It is, it's, <laughs> it's restraining. A prone restraint is mm. what they use in this. And if you aren't aware, prone restraints, which one should never, yeah. ever be used in that situation and has even gotten autistic children killed I was going to say people die, um, have died from those restraints. So this, the, the film has the audacity to do this not only twice, but in one of them when Leslie Odom Jr., which, by the way, why the fuck is he in this movie? Especially when this was shot back in 2017, right at the peak of fucking Hamilton fever. Why mm. the fuck did you need to be in this movie? But mm. getting onto that, his character in the one time where he pins her to the ground and basically stops her, mm. which one, it works. The film shows that this actually fucking works, which is disgusting. But then, and I'm just going to check the meter here because I might be blowing it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, holding, I'm holding the microphone quite close to my face. But what's even more fucking infuriating is that how he describes what he is doing is I'm crushing her with my love <laughs> you, That's horrible. that is just too much flagrant <laughs> ignorance and just mm. borderline psychopathy honestly mm. that I can't even begin to explain how fucking dangerous that is mm. that's horrible that's just like a I don't know like some kind of like torrent line that they were used to like cover up their oppressive act i'm doing it for your benefit it's not because i want to do it or it benefits me whoa fucking infuriating i mean and third sorry i was just gonna say like i don't know why she would think it would be a good idea to do these like weird police like takedowns like have those in the film being performed on a, on a child. And even in one of them, the one where they do it, there's one where it's it at home and there's one in public. And when they do it in public, all the extras are noticeably looking at what they're doing and being like, what the fuck is going on? And it's yeah. like, see ya, take note of your fucking extras. Yeah. <laughs> and thirdly, I mean, this gets into Sia and this is an encapsulation of Sia's attitude towards this entire, entire film, which is... Notably, disgusting, ableist, and just absolutely fucking enraging. Her cameo in the film. Now, she says that she approached both Beyonce and Katy Perry to do this cameo, and uh, never never got a reply from Beyonce, and apparently Katy Perry was going to do it, but then dropped out because of a scheduling conflict. Having seen what this cameo actually is, I doubt that very, very much. <laughs> Because what happens, the character, so as I said, Kate Hudson's character, like, even though she is a recovering drug addict, she is still selling painkillers and Percocets. And so she goes to a very secretive customer who turns out to be Sia, playing (laughs) herself, the pop star Sia, who Zoo just happens to be a massive fan of. But that's not even the worst part about it. She's buying the Percocets and all these other painkillers from uh, Kate Hudson's character. You would think in what I thought might have been 
a kind of self-deprecating cameo mm. where Sia might slow might show the slightest bit of self-awareness, mm. but then I forgot what fucking movie I was watching, <laughs> and then. It, oh, like it's just savior complex wankery. That's mm. how I described it in my written review, which you can now read on moviebabble.com, which mm. is over two, two, 2,200 words long. What she does, she's not buying the painkillers for recreational use. She's like, oh, there's Haitian earthquake victims who are dangerously low on medication, and I'm sending it to them because I am this angelic, you know, selfless uh, and uh, angelic vision, and you know, this infallible image of moral superiority in this film that I'm making. And then she's getting them from a back alley drug dealer. Yes, but (laughs) (laughs) and she's gonna send them. She's going to mail them over? But yeah, this, sure. But this, sure. it's like, Sia, she has the, the fucking audacity in the midst of this fucking ableist shit show that she is orchestrating mm. to put herself on a pedestal like this as like, you know, as I said, this infallible image of moral superiority and look how fucking great I am by doing this. It's in... <laughs> I'm, I'm fucked. It's fucked. It really... Yeah, this movie is fucked. fucked up. I mean, like... Something like that, as you were mentioning, like the lack of self-awareness almost looks like, you know, what it is, an excuse for her to do the painkillers. It's just just uh, substituting, like, some... Like, if, if it wasn't enough for her, like, to exploit autistic people to make a film, and, like, shill some money out of... Um, I don't know what crowd she's thinking that this is going to sell well and to. Even, even if you were to put all of these fucking ableist things aside that I've mentioned... Mm. The movie is so badly made. Like, Sia does not know how to tell or edit Mm. a story. Like, there is a really, really meaningless subplot with, like, an across-the-street neighbour that, like, really takes, like, is is one of Sia's friends, basically. The Mm. movie keeps cutting to this guy as if he's going to have some big relevance or importance. But then it goes nowhere, but where it leads to is a scene of domestic violence that has no relevance to the story, the overall story whatsoever, and is just pure manipulation and exploitation. I couldn't fucking believe what I was watching. Mm. It's disgusting. This entire movie is disgusting. Mm. It is a grotesque monstrosity that is incredibly dangering, dangerous and damaging to the autistic community and people should fucking let it tank and the fact that the Hollywood Foreign Press fucking awarded it with nominations to Golden Globes is just validating this film's fucking disgusting portrayal of autism Mm. and is endorsing it it endorses it that's what's even worse yeah it would be there's no doubt about that even if like they 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 didn't see the film it's just the it's just the, the 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 just sheer ignorance of them just not even like investigating what it is no and it seems like a lot of the time they'll just do stuff like this anyway probably because they're um paying favors to see it perhaps it's like see it it was like oh i spoke to an autistic i spoke to an autistic child once Mm. and um, and that's my movie yeah and they're probably which is basically what she says in the press notes she's basically like it was inspired by like a young boy a young autistic boy who I met from like uh, when I went to like an Alcoholics Anonymous group, and I talked to the mother, and then I had the thought of like, oh, what would this poor boy do without his if his mother was gone? And she's like, that was the basis of music, that was the basis of the film. Okay, so the mother's absent, and the sister's looking after the. Well, no, the uh, grandmother's, the grand, oh. well, the, the guardian is gone, and yeah. the older half sister. Yeah, it's just fuck. Don't please, 
please do not fucking see this movie. Mm. I saw this. I missed the press showing to this because I had work and well, I just used... Just don't give money I used to a free... Well, no, no, don't, don't even go fucking see it. I felt like it was my obligation as both a film critic and someone on the autism spectrum to see this film and to take the bullet for the autistic community so they don't fucking have to. Mm. Please just don't fucking see this movie. And if you want more more on this film, read my review on moviebabble.com where I really fucking take this movie to task. And I didn't even mention just how even like the the big ticket items of this is the musical numbers. Like in isolation, these could work as music videos because they sure as fuck have no relevance to the story of what's going on. You think they might like give some sort of introspection into like, you know, what the characters are thinking or like progress the for- story forward in some way. Hmm. Nope. They just happen. They just happen. They're just distractions. They're, as, I, as, I wrote, as I wrote in my review, they are the cinematic equivalent of dangling a pair of shiny car keys in front of an infant's face. Hmm. It's honestly like The Greatest Showman. It is the greatest showman syndrome where it's pretending mm. to be something else, but but when you really look at it under the yeah. really, the really, really thinly veiled uh, facade mm. that this movie is putting up. Like yeah. the, the, the thing that it's made out of fucking tinfoil at this point, like yeah. it's that fucking flimsy. You see just how fucking sinister this movie really is. Yeah. This is another one of those, like uh, the um, sort of social. Uh, justice kind of um, oh, we, they're trying to like sell it to them but it's sort of like just an exploitative it's just exploiting like these uh, things they, them thinking that they're doing enough to sort of make it seem like they give a shit when they don't yep. they're just trying to shill money out of them no nah, honestly let this movie tank make an example out of it and ma- lead it to demand for proper representation of autistic people or just any marginalized community. It just seems like this is just now the, the prime example on how to not make a film about Yes, Rain Man people. has been dethroned. And Sia, Sia also said she wanted to make a music, basically Rain Man the musical, which, you know, fa- Rain Man, a famously terrible portrayal of autism. Hmm. Let's fuck. I'm, do- I'm done talking about this movie. Don't see it. Read my review on Movie Babble for more. Just... This movie's fucking evil. There's really no other words to describe it other than this movie is just evil. And, well, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't have left that to be the last movie because we're, we're, ending, well, I was we're s- ending on a really fucking glum note I was going to say, like, I, I hope there's not much more to talk about because... <laughs> <laughs> So not We've sure just made be... all the listeners depressed. All mm. fucking fifty. Oh, I was gonna say. I was gonna say fifty, but that's being generous. I mean, if we wanted to come back at a lighter note, it would have been the time to start talking about, like, I don't know, movies like Hillbilly Elegy or, or, or um, I don't know, Hubie Halloween, which like, 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 I don't know, stupid. I can't even like remember one, but. The other one was just, I don't know, silly. Well, uh, or like it, other silly things like that. Well, I will say now is, um, to finish off the show, um, any 2020, like, cause this is our first show of 2021. Are there any films coming out this year that you are interested or intrigued in seeing? Honestly, I haven't checked. You haven't checked? Um, no. even like, what, what about some of the ones that were like from 2020 films that were delayed to 20 to this year? Any of those? I I can't really remember what has been delayed. Oh, okay. Well, pretty pretty much everything, really. Uh, what like stuff like Dune? And yeah, all that. Dune. Yeah. Yeah. Dune I, I doesn't guess look that good to me. I don't think it'd be as good as uh twenty forty nine something. Yeah, it, it, even though it seems to visually uh, try to like evoke that sort of I don't know epicness or that sort of dystopian kind of 
um, science fiction look to know, it. It just looks kind of li- like Dune, the trailer, like, because I, I, I didn't see it until I saw, um, until we saw Tenet and IMAX, I think. Mm. And I was just, I think I maybe even turned to you and being like, this looks really bland. Yeah, I mean, the pa- I don't know if it was just the palette that they had, but it's... It, I don't know. I'm not to be honest. I'm not really excited about it. I just have a lot of friends that they they love the book Dune, and um, I don't know. It's uh, it's also, f- also funny to every now and then like talk about like David Lynch's Dune, um, especially if you've seen like all those various cuts, and then like have like I don't know a friend of mine tell me like oh they kept this, they, you know they got rid of that, that sort of thing, you know in the like what's been lost in the adaptation. Well, I am wondering now. I mean, it's been very well documented this, but like. The, the the story is that um, David Lynch did Dune because he turned down directing Star Wars Revenge of the... No, not Return of the Jedi. David Lynch... George Lucas asked David Lynch to do Return of the Jedi and he turned it down to do Dune. I, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Um, it could be true. I think I've heard something like that. It would be funny if he did direct a Star Wars film because maybe he would have just you know made Hollywood films from that point it would have been like the oh yeah I mean um, he has made a couple of Hollywood films I mean Dune was not probably really. his first four I mean no the Dune was like the last Hollywood film like mm-hmm. uh, Elephant Man I don't know that was a studio film but I don't it's, know if it was a Hollywood um, it's really only those two everything else is just independent pretty much yeah Dune was because Dune failed it went on just to to do independent films where he had complete creative control because he Mo- hated Mo- working. Also on had some mainstream success. It had mainstream ex- success, but it, that that wasn't uh, um, that wasn't like a what do you call it studio film. I think it might have. I mean, like I think it was Studio Canal released it. I'm pretty sure. So yeah, but like the one of the big one that of the was big, supposed to be a television Universal. series. Yeah. I think with the exception of like the television series is like I mean there was a bit of conflict with I the the second season of Twin Peaks. I think Universal bought Mulholland Drive for like twenty million dollars at Cannes or something. Yeah, like probably that. after after yeah. it was made. No, they didn't have a uh, funding while it was being made. Yeah. Um, I think at that point he doesn't give a shit who um who owns it. Yeah. Well, fucking as long Dis- as I as, as long as re- it's not Apple and they're putting it. <laughs> Disney released the straight story. That that is the most D- Disney releasing the straight story is the most absurdest and like not really weird straight thing. Story is pretty straight. No, but I uh, uh, just like the concept of Disney distributing a David Lynch film is more you know baffling than anything that ever happens in any David. Not Lynch really. Film. Maybe if they if they decide to release like I don't know like Lost Highway or or Blue Velvet. I'd, oh my god, I'd love to see that. Just have Lime King and then Blue Velvet right next to it, the Disney Plus like <laughs> well, streaming thing. Over. Well, well, they're getting that star on Disney Plus soon, so I wonder if we're going to see <laughs> just the entire. Wait, what's this star? Oh, uh, it's just like all of the 20th Century Fox stuff is going to be like on a certain segment on oh. Disney Plus. So like, or the entire like 20, a lot of the 20th Century Fox catalog is going to go on there. Disney should just buy it, Lynch. They just get Lynch to make kids movies. <laughs> you never do that, but. That'd be funny. So straight story is, it could be straight story is rated G. That's because the straight story is it is what it is. It's yeah. it's just a straight, and it's great. It's yeah. It's it's, it's I really love the straight. Story. I mean, like it's it's like uh, almost an antithesis to his work, where he decided to make something. I mean, it's got some little quirky Lynch elements to it, but yeah. it's like it's pretty um, straightforward, and it's got like a nice 
uh, sort of degree of sentiment yeah. that you wouldn't see in and any uh, like Lynch films. And who doesn't love a surprise Harry Dean Stanton at the end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nah, yeah. straight stories. Uh, it's it's interesting how it just contrasts between all the other films. Okay, and I think the moral of this podcast is see the straight story and not music. Mm. A better a better representation of disability in that film as well with Sissy Spacek's character. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, he seems to have a fondness for like outsiders, especially yeah. if, like in the case of like Elephant Man, that makes it seem really apparent. Definitely. Where he really seems to like um, humanize his. Uh, people from like the fair when they sort of like escape and go on their little Atlantic trip back to like England mm. um, that's yeah it almost seems like a I don't know if that film from the 30s freaks is like uh, necessarily like negative representation of uh, um, I don't know people with deformities um, but either seem like he was trying to channel that spirit if it was positive or he was you know completely like denouncing it um one of the two. Mm. Uh, yeah, so watch the straight story wherever mm. that's. Will that be streaming on Disney Plus? It isn't. I, I I don't think. I think only. I think Disney only have North American distribution rights for that film. So because I think mm. it's some some other some other distributor has it here in Australia. But mm. see the straight story and not music. And also go see Minari when it comes out on February twenty eighth. And go see Earwig and the Witch, which mm. is in cinemas now. And Nomadland, which we also forgot to forget, which we saw as part of like its preview run from Boxing Day, that comes back to cinemas closer to awards season at March 4th. Well, most importantly, see, Jesus shows you the way to the highway. <laughs> what is that? I'm pretty sure I've told you about this film like many times. I'm sure you have, but not um, on the podcast. And now the the listeners. Yeah, well, this is this is why I decided to mention it. <laughs> hopefully, being like the last thing of the podcast. Like, I'm pretty sure I haven't We're, mentioned it, this. We've been we've been really low energy and on a downer after my rant I about mean, music. Je- so Jesus shows Jesus shows you the way to the uh, highway. It was um some really bizarre. Um, I think the filmmaker was like a southern american guy um that seems to have a fascination with ethiopia so he's made a bunch of films in ethiopia starring like ethiopian um like actors and like jesus shows you the way to highways like some really strange it kind of reminds me of danger five it's sort of the best way i can describe it where it's like is it like what hollywood sort of movies oh it's got like kind of hollywood elements but it's all like a weird like parody so it's like, it's got this like weird 80s, uh, like this, oh, it's hard to describe. There's like a weird Cold War, like spy insurgency um, element running through it. And like the, <laughs> it's like the, 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 the protagonist is sort of like, the, 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 the way they show his domestic life, it's almost like a, like, um, like the detective from the noir film, like going home, that sort of thing. It's like, it's like a mix, mix smash of all sorts of things. It's surreal and bizarre. Um, and, and completely absurd. I can't remember it too well now, but I could just remember all like, like these really bizarre things. Like they, they have to like fight Stalin. And there's like this, there's always this like recurring image of like Stalin playing chess. Like they're in this like, this weird metaphysical chess game with like Stalin. And Stalin's just like this guy wearing that, like a paper that mask. To, is that meant to be like a seven seal riff or something you think? Uh, seven seal riff. Uh, perhaps. But like Stalin in the film, like like they they go they technically they basically go to like the Matrix to to like um I don't know steal information and sort of like uh, I don't know fight like uh, enemy spies and that sort of thing and like Stalin like you know chases them with like a sickle and hammer. 
<laughs> but but then again, like this 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 yeah, this film seems to be have a lot of these weird sort of like, uh, like character par- parodies of like politicians or like world leaders. Like there's that's just the style. And then there's like the the president of Ethiopia who's wearing like a Batman outfit. And when, and when they introduce him, like some person's like kissing his toes, and he like kicks him. Like and this is him at his pool. He like kicks the guy. And he's like running to to his sports car to fight some like two blokes that are at that the Ethiopian border that he had, like just you know fights them in a fist fight essentially and he just like I don't know goes back to his like mansion it's like really bizarre like that and the whole time like the Batman symbols like sense this sounds I I know like it, it fits into the category of what we cover even though it doesn't really it is really not befitting of the name from what you're describing mm. but this sounds like a film fiasco. <laughs> Um, or just, could, a, film, it, it, or just it, a film we can talk it, about. It could be a film fiasco, but it's not like... It wouldn't be... Because um, I think I might have mentioned this in the past. Like We could have like weird films that we watch, but it doesn't mean that they're necessarily bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's sort of like... So we don't just have to pick films that are kind of just shitty. Because um, this is definitely not shitty. It's kind of amazing. Um but yeah, it would be entertaining to, to watch and sort of like pull apart and you know see what they're doing. And uh, thinking that sort of thing. All right. Uh, so on the fifty-seventh tangent we've taken this episode, uh, the the other message of this podcast is: see, Jesus knows the way to the highway. Jesus shows you the shows way to you the, the way highway. to the highway. So see that and not music, because mm. that, that that's what I should just say after every uh, after every single movie review. We just say see this and not music. Yeah. <laughs> don't see music, please. Fucking don't. It's terrible. Mm. But. <laughs> I keep putting us on a downer on each bloody time I'm about to wrap up the podcast. So I'm going to do it now. Thank you very much, for Eric, for joining me, as always. Uh, Eric is not on social media, but he is on Letterboxd. And since he had Letterboxd uh, within uh, phone distance, he can tell you what his Letterboxd is if you want to go follow should him. should just be Mr. M. Pickles, I think. Just not Mr. Pickles, but just M. Pickles. Yes. Uh, uh, Eric's Letterboxd is very strange because almost every single film he logs, I have never even heard of before. Yeah. At the moment, <laughs> my name is Ike the Spitz. <laughs> and I think... That, uh, you've got... You've got oh, that, 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 that... Oh, well, on, on the phone, they, do, they don't update the pictures, uh, yeah, but pictures you, you, regularly. You have alt-right James Franco or something, don't you? As your well, <laughs> not alt-right James Franco, it's, it's just him it's, it's him from Zeroville, but yeah, he, he, it's weird because he looks like the big smash of like a skinhead in a in a hippie. It's it's really weird when you watch the film. It's even weirder when you read the book. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of love uh, Alphaville. That came out last Alphaville. year, didn't? No, uh, Al, I mean That's Zeroville. I mean Al- movie, Alphaville's <laughs> all right, but but Zeroville is where it's at. <laughs> watch Zeroville, yeah, masterpiece. Man. And uh, the the book's pretty good too. <laughs> uh, awesome. Yeah, I think the last film I saw was uh, uh, W. S. Anderson's Shopping. Not bad, shopping? actually. Yeah. What I have never. You never heard of Shopping? It's his first movie. No. This is this is the this is like the one film that some people th- would say like out of everything that he's made, aside from maybe Event Horizon, like this is a good <laughs> this is a good movie. So, some people genuinely say the Mortal Kombat. Yeah. <laughs> oh my that. God, Mortal Kombat. Fuck that movie. <laughs> I'll say everything else is good, but fuck Mortal Kombat. That's horrible. That, that new. I'm kind of interested to see that new Mortal Kombat movie. Well, the animated one. Well, it's not animated. It's a live action one. Wait, when? It's coming out in like April. Oh, that would be interesting. Shot in Adelaide too. A friend, a friend of mine may or may not oh, have worked Sean, on Sean, you it. would have heard of uh, Sudden Impact. I have. I was That's watching Eastwood movie. Yeah, right? that was one that he directed. 
Oh. That's so sleazy, that movie. It's like, like a, it's almost like a Michael Winner. Says, Go ahead, make my day, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, sudden impact. Oh, what a funny All movie. All right, we are delaying this podcast way too much. Everybody is tuned out, but if you are still listening for whatever reason, firstly, why? Replay it. Yeah, yeah. Start, start the episode from the beginning and listen again. Just, just put this episode on repeat for the f- till the end of time. We need to mm. rack up. We need to rack up those. Uh, we need to rack up those listens mm. and get the stats up a bit. And just uh, make make sure you have it. Or you trigger it on a device in uh, every single country. Like make a device in every country and just mm. trigger hit play on all of them. So like <laughs> it looks like we've got <laughs> far. We reach way further than we actually do. But anyway, I'm going to stop talking now. But I'm going to continue talking. But I'm going to talk about our plugs and where you can follow us on social media like our Facebook page you can follow us on Twitter at AB Movie Podcast and on Instagram at AB Movie Pod those are quite inactive but if you start following I'll start doing stuff for those ones so get onto that and then also subscribe to us if you enjoyed this episode we are available wherever good podcasts and also bad ones because we are a really bad fucking podcast. Well, uh, We're available s- everywhere on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called now, um, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, just search for another Bloody Movie podcast and hit subscribe. You were going to say something, Eric. Oh, I was going to say, I like to think that we're still deciding whether or not we want to be good <laughs> or bad. We've been around, like, we, I think we, we, we've been doing, I've been doing this for four years now. And very, very irregularly. So this podcast mm. is four years old now, and we still don't know if we're a good podcast or not. Yeah, I mean, like some episodes, we seem to be like really clear, and we know what we, <laughs> we're going to talk about. And we get through it, like you know, like quite cleanly. Yeah, th- th- uh, this, without... th- this episode is more or less an excuse of for Eric and I to catch up because yeah. we haven't seen each other for a solid. I mean, month this now. is easily one of the the most like free form episodes, and we've had some that are very loose free form. <laughs> talk about this, bring this back. It's like yeah. just juggling puzzle pieces. Yep. <laughs> Eric gave you his Letterboxd uh, account to go follow, and I'll give you mine. That is letterboxd.com forward slash Sean Coates. That is S-E-A-N-C-L-A-T-E-S. Go follow me there. And also read my more expansive uh, reviews over at moviebabble.com. Um, as I said, I have a very long review of music, mm. which you can go read if you want more of my very... Um, apoplectic rage towards that movie uh go ahead and read that i also have started a new column over at movie babble called the babble down under where every two weeks i review an australian film either new old good bad or mainstream or very very obscure Mm. Uh, every two weeks i'll be writing a review uh my first uh piece uh on the latest film high ground which we did not talk about on uh, this episode today, but is actually doing quite well at the Australian box office, along with The Dry and Penguin Bloom. This is the first time in quite a while I have seen three Australian films in the top five of the Australian box office, which is really, really good to see. Mm. So make sure you go read my review of High Ground over at moviebabble.com. And also, um, there's Sundance coverage of uh, on moviebabble.com on moviebabble right now. So go check out that. Our writer's over at Movie Babble are doing a great job covering that festival, so go check that out. So when are you going to uh, review Alvy Purple? Both what? Alvy Purples. Oh, ooh, man. <laughs> you know what? Maybe once I get into the exploitation era, may- mm. maybe I'll just do like a whole, or as a, a whole like three Tarantino months. Tarantino would just say exploitation. Into- yeah. <laughs> Me yeah. from Hong Kong. Just wins do, that do, do it. I'll just do a deep dive into Brian Trenchard Smith. I might just do that. Yeah. Like the king of B movies, Brian <laughs> Trenchard Smith. Anyway, thanks for listening. Um, 
no idea when the next episode will be but make sure you subscribe keep up to date with everything um if you are in a place that has covid restrictions please abide by them please wash your hands wear a mask do all the right do the right thing just don't be a dick make sure you cough on everyone <laughs> please don't don't listen to this cunt here <laughs> but keep listening to our podcast wherever you are yeah yeah <laughs> even even when i'm speaking <laughs> <laughs> Yes, don't, don't, why do I even have Eric on the show? He just spouts nonsense. Well, I mean, if you weren't here, you might look insane. Yeah, oh, I'm sure that, I'm sure the listeners already think I am. And, uh, there is no more bars left on the battery of this recorder. So I'm going to say thank you very much. And we will, whenever the next episode is, we will see you then. Have a good, have a good night or day, whenever you're listening to this. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. See ya.